Thanks, Rob. I'd also like to start by paying my respects to the custodians of this land and pay my respects to elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I thought I'd start by telling you a little bit about myself because I know many of you probably don't know who I am, but I trace my passion for animal protection all the way back to when I was a young child. I actually remember sitting there holding a hen in my arms and the hen was purring. And I remember thinking, this hen shows joy in the same way as my cat at home shows joy. And I thought, if I can't eat my cat, then I can't eat this hen. And I went home and I wrote to my parents and I told them, I don't want to eat animals anymore. But I was actually a naive vegetarian for a very long time. And it was many years later that somebody simply handed me a flyer on the street. And I went home and I went onto the internet and I researched what was on that flyer. And I read about dairy calves being taken from their mothers and sent to slaughter in the dairy industry so that we could take the milk that was designed for those babies and drink it for humans. And I read about the egg industry macerating day-old male chicks because uh, boys won't, won't actually produce eggs. And it was really like the lights just went on. And from that day forward, I knew I wanted to be part of a great movement of change to protect animals. I went vegan overnight, but it needed to be more than that. At the time, I was studying education at university, and I actually switched courses, and I moved into psychology, because animal cruelty is human-caused, and there needs to be a human-focused solution. So I ended up doing my master's in health psychology, because health psychology looks at how do we actually create mass behaviour change? How do we convince entire populations to quit smoking? How do we convince entire populations to start wearing seatbelts? This is what health psychologists have been working on. And I knew if I learnt some of those strategies, that I'd be able to take some of those strategies and use them in the animal field. And that's exactly what I've been doing for over a decade. I've worked with a variety of charities and I focused on that individual behaviour change as well as corporate change. So to give you an example of what I mean there, um, a big famous campaign that obviously a lot of organisations were heavily involved in is the use of battery cages in the egg industry. So when we're talking about individual change, we're talking about that huge shift that we saw where people actually stopped buying caged eggs. Now that was you know, more than 30 years of work from a variety of organisations and campaigns to actually convince people that it was cruel to buy eggs from battery cage systems. And when we got to about 50% of people refusing to buy caged eggs, then we saw corporations start to change and we saw Woolworths and we saw Coles actually put up these ethical policies to say, we're not going to sell caged eggs anymore. So that was the sort of work that I was really heavily focused on, is working with individuals to make sure that they switched their own behaviours so that they were changing their purchases, so that they were choosing not to attend events that would harm animals like circuses and also working with corporations. So when someone approached me and said, would you consider running for parliament, I really had to ask myself, where am I best placed to help animals? And I looked at the work that was being done on individual behaviour change and on corporate policies, and I could see fantastic work being done by organisations like Animals Australia and Animal Liberation, and we were getting real headway in those two spaces. But then I had a look at Parliament, and in New South Wales, the government had just banned greyhound racing and then backflipped on it. And just to give you an example of how badly they backflipped on it, 
the government gave $500,000 of our taxpayers' money to the greyhound racing industry as a prize for one race. Now, to put that into context, the government also gives the exact same amount of money, $500,000, for the enforcement of animal cruelty laws. That's their contribution to upholding the law. And they put private charities in charge of actually upholding that, and that's how much money they give them. The same amount of money that they gave as, as prize money for a greyhound race. Federally, we could see the, a national party minister as part of the government pushing to expand the live animal export trade, despite seeing expose after expose of egregious animal cruelty that was happening in these industries. So the governments weren't following where public sentiment was, they weren't following science, they weren't following where corporations were going. In fact, if you look at politics, it was like we were going backwards. And I knew that we needed to have voices for animals in parliament, and I knew that it was going to be a, an uphill battle, but we had to be in there to make sure that we could get that change through. To go back to my example about battery cages, if you, whenever I talk about battery cages to people, they always say, oh, didn't we get rid of them? They're illegal now. Now, the majority of eggs that are sold in Australia still come from battery cages. Now, we've got that individual change. Most people, if you ask them on the street, say that they would never buy caged eggs at a, at a minimum. You talk to corporations, you talk about big supermarkets, they say, well, we don't sell caged eggs anymore. But of course, they're hidden in products, they're hidden in mayonnaise, they're hidden in cakes. So people are buying it and not even realising that they're buying caged eggs. So until we make it illegal, until we actually change that political and that policy process, then that cruelty is going to continue to happen. Another example um, is one that started when I actually got elected. Um, so I'm on a portfolio that oversees the agriculture minister and the dairy industry actually approached us and said that they wanted to um, run an inquiry on the dairy industry because their profits were going down. And essentially, that inquiry was them saying, we want more subsidies from the government, so we want more public money, more taxpayers' money to prop up our industry um, because consumers are moving away from our product. So it doesn't matter if people are campaigning on these things and getting that individual change if our governments are actually helping prop up those industries with our taxpayers' money. The good news is, though, with that inquiry, is that we actually managed to get um, a recommendation from that inquiry for transformation. And so what I proposed was that instead of those government subsidies going in to actually prop up a dying industry when people are moving away from dairy for health reasons, for animal cruelty reasons, for environment reasons, why don't we use that same money to actually help farmers transition out of this industry and into what consumers are purchasing and focusing on more ethical alternatives and plant-based farming? So we actually managed to get that as a recommendation in that inquiry. But of course, that would have never happened if we didn't have representatives for animals in parliament because I was the only person on that inquiry that was actually representing animals as part of that inquiry. If we hadn't been there as the Animal Justice Party, then the recommendations would have simply been for the government to give more money to prop up and continue this industry. So what we really need when we're campaigning and when we're focusing on our campaigning 
that individual behaviour change needs to happen first. It's a slow slog of a campaign, but we can't get corporate change and political change until we get that individual change. And that individual behaviour change needs to continue to happen. I would never be elected as a representative and never get enough votes to get elected into parliament unless there was that initial drive to get all that individual behaviour change, awareness amongst people about what was happening to animals. Then we need the corporate change because that adds the pressure. And we can't get the corporate change until that individual change happens. And then we need political change. And political change is one of the hardest ones to get, but it's going to have the biggest effect when we do have it. And so that's why we really need to focus on all three aspects and make sure that political and policy change is part of all of our campaigning. Let's grab a seat. Let's grab my questions. Oh, oh there you go. All right. So, so far the campaigns that you've been mostly working on, uh, those kind of sentencing for animal abuse and, and puppy mills and so on, they're, they're kind of around these uh, domestic animals or more charismatic animals. Yeah, well, well, yeah, what's the strategic reason to, to, to fight those battles, I guess, rather than other options? So what we did, um, when I was first elected, we spent an entire day, we got uh, post-it notes, and we thought of every single animal issue that we could think of. Um, for everything from wombat mange to bestiality to um, battery cages. And we put every single animal issue and we ranked every single issue on a few different aspects. So we looked at neglectedness, how much that issue was being neglected and not campaigned on by other organisations or other political parties. Um, the winnability and the tractability, so getting public on side, even getting other political parties on side, um, and then also the number of animals that it would affect if we did win it. So what we ended up with was some campaigns that actually did affect, you know, the most number of animals um, and, um, and, and really had that tractability as well. So, for example, one of those campaigns, and it's interesting because we end up with some campaigns that have sort of a level of um, tractability, and that's probably what people see. So the puppy farming one has a huge tractability. Um, but then we also did do a massive campaign on battery hens, and maybe it doesn't have the same tractability, but it has a, a much more enormous effect on animals. But it's probably something that because it doesn't have that tractability, people don't necessarily see that we're working on it as much. I see. So I guess, so maybe they don't show up in the successes as much because it's just like actually harder. I guess the reward, the payoff would be massively larger because there's so many more chickens and the conditions are potentially worse, but it's, it might be a bit, uh, might take longer to, to, to get there. I guess, what, what do you think would happen if the Animal Justice Party kind of switched its strategy to fo focusing primarily on farmed animals on the basis that there's more of them, the conditions are worse? Like how would that play out, do you imagine? Look, I think that I think it's really important for the Animal Justice Party to make sure that we do have a huge focus on farmed animals. Um, but there are also aspects where we can get some winnable campaigns, and probably a really good example is the um, tougher penalties campaign that we ran. So we increased the penalties um, as, as for animal cruelty. Now that affects every single animal that is recognised as an animal. 
um, under those cruelty laws. And I say that because some animals, like octopus, aren't even recognised as animals in New South Wales. Um, but that's the sort of campaign where we have a win, and having a win obviously builds our brand and, and builds the recognition. Um, and obviously this is the sort of stuff that we can get a lot of media on, so people actually know that we're working on this. Um, but at the same time, that builds our voice for some of those other campaigns like the Battery Hens, which we're still definitely working on. Is the main thing that makes the farmed animal issue intractable is the, the, the National Party and their dependence on, I guess, yeah, farming people in the country who um, are just like are not interested in having more regulation of their, of their industry? It's, I wish I could say yes to that, but I, I, I can't because um, I, th I actually think the fundamental issue is that we've got a Minister for Agriculture in charge of animal protection. And so I see the same problem if we switch to a Labor government because the Agriculture Minister is, in, is essentially trying to protect industry and protect animals, and those two things don't, don't work together. The, the Premier, in principle, could change that setup, right? They could, you know, do a cabinet reshuffle and create a new, like, or, like, move the portfolio to somewhere else, but, but, but they choose not to do that. Absolutely. And, and look, there are places um, in the UK, for example, where there is, you know, somebody that's in charge specifically for animal protection. There are other places where there's a Minister for Environment and Animals, and you'll see that there's far more progress in animal protection laws in those places, and so I think that that's one of our first steps where we need to actually separate animal protection away from the agriculture minister to avoid that conflict of interest. Yeah, I, I, have you put this to the premier or the government? Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We've uh, got a petition. <laughs> and what, yeah. uh, what, what, what do they say? Uh, like, no thanks, I guess. Was, uh... Look, it's, it's going to be very... Look, obviously there is... Um, a difference with the National Party. The National Party hold on to animal protection yeah. very, very tightly. Yeah. And at the moment, we do have a Liberal National Government. Um, so I think that our stronger position is to convince the Labor Party to put up a Minister for Animal Protection. Um, and then if we've got a Minister for Animal Protection and an Independent Office of Animal Protection, and the Independent Office of Animal Protection reports to that Minister, then we'll see some changes. But if the Independent um, Office reports to the Agriculture Minister, they could they will get lobbied like by these very financial lobby groups. Yeah. So, yeah, I haven't lived here for 10 years, so maybe I don't have my finger on the, on the, on the pulse here, but I, but I did hear about the, the teal independence and uh, how, how well they did in the, in the election the other month. Um, is it possible, I guess, as I understand it, they kind of used climate change as this sort of wedge issue within, uh, within the right or within the, the Liberal Party. Is it possible you could make animals, to some degree, a wedge issue within the like, Liberal National Coalition? Because I imagine farmers in the National Party probably feel quite differently to you know, inner city, like upper middle class folks who might, who might value animal protection quite a lot and might not be happy with, in fact, what the coalition is, is up to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I would agree with that entirely. And it's really interesting being in Parliament. I think I went in a little bit blind and I sort of thought that Labor would be on side and Liberal would be against us on everything. And what I found was that actually sometimes the Liberal left was more on side than Labor right. Um, so everyone kind of moves all over the place and there's fractions within each party and so it can be quite difficult. Um, but I have spoken to quite a few of the Liberal lefts and one of them, who's actually now a minister, said that his electorate, the thing he gets emailed most about is battery cages. Mm. So there'd be a lot of them that would happily pass these, these laws, but they won't because of the conservative side of their party and they won't because of the National Party and their coalition with the National Party. Um, and so definitely I think we need to expose the fact that, that they're ignoring these laws, that they're ignoring animals and the environment. 
Yeah, in, in the UK, my impression... So it seems like in Australia and the US, there's a combination of total indifference to the issue and it, like, being reasonably partisan, where, like, the, the, the left is maybe receptive sometimes, the right not so much. In the UK, it really doesn't seem to be a partisan issue almost at all. Like, the, the Conservatives do put up, like, animal protection stuff and they talk about it about as much as, uh, as, as the Labour Party does. Do you, yeah, do you know what, like, the structural reason might be? And, like, can we, can we become more like that? And, and it is strange that you ask that because, you know, when I talk to Labor, they say that in their caucus, it always goes Labor right, Labor left. But when an animal issue comes up, they go all over the place. Um, and there are some Labor right people who are very supportive of the Animal Justice Party and the things that we're putting up. And just to give you an example of, you know, the, the position of power we have in the upper house, for me to get anything passed, I need to get Labor, the Greens, independent Justin Field, who's a former Green, and I've got to get one other. So I can get the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, One Nation, or Fred Nile, who's um, the Christian Democrats, um, or okay. uh, Senior United. But Fred will often vote with us. Huh, okay. So he's yeah. very conservative, but he will often vote for animal protection issues. Interesting. Yeah, why is that? I, th I think... Just you, president cares, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes, yeah, makes sense. I mean, it does kind of cut across, like, a lot of... Like, you know, what did Marx have to say about animal protection? I don't know. Probably probably not a whole lot. Like, you know, uh, what did what did Friedman or Hayek have to say about it? It seems like it can just plausibly, like, something that people could be receptive to just on the basis that they like animals. Or, Absolutely. Uh, but have decent humanity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I find that, you know, when I go to get that vote, you know, I'll often talk to Fred Nolan, I'll often talk to One Nation, I'll talk to Mark Latham, um, because that's where we're more likely to get the votes. There's been twice... Did you say Mark Latham? Yeah. <laughs> He's, okay, sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll Google that later. So carry on. Yes. <laughs> He's in I, New South Wales out now. Politics you've, for a while. You've uh, been yeah. really, yeah, really overseas for a while. Sorry, he's in New South Wales Parliament now, Upper House. Okay. <laughs> and cool. he and, he's, cool. and he represents One Nation. Oh, one Things na have changed. <laughs> we we should get back. <laughs> I'm uh, definitely going to Google it. Um, okay. uh, where were we? Uh, we're talking about how you got to get one of those folks on board. I guess, okay, so, so the dream for you in the future would be to um, hold the balance of power and, or like to be one of the groups that holds the balance of power in the, in the upper house there. You'd give you, give you a whole lot more leverage. Uh, I guess at the moment you have two. So it's like a, you go the two states, so it's like two elections back, the, the Senate is, is elected. Um, so ideally, I guess next election you'd like to get two people up. Um, well, yeah, well, like how, how close is it for you whether you get like two representatives or one? Is it like really on a knife edge? Um, it, it definitely would be. Look, we're, we've been constantly growing. When we got our first MP elected, Mark, um, Mark Pearson, he, he only just got in. In fact, it was so close that the person that didn't get elected was going to challenge it because he thought it might be like 100 or 200 votes difference. Um, when I got elected, I didn't take the last seat, I took the second last seat, so we got okay. better. Yeah. And the federal election, we doubled our vote. Um, but it is still so close, and it's dependent on a lot of factors. It's dependent on what other minor parties run. Um, so it's still very, very tight. I see. Um, yeah, I remember back in high school, I would like go out and do leafleting at the, at the South Australian elections for the Animal Justice Party, or the Animal Rights Party. It seemed, at the time, it felt like a bit tokenistic. I don't think like things were nearly as organised as, as, the, as they are now. But... but do you have a sense of like how many extra votes you get when someone actually goes and leaflets? Because I imagine many voters go in just not even knowing that it's an option to vote for a, for a party like that, and, but they might be super animal lovers. Yeah, look, it makes an enormous difference. Um, so we've actually looked at some of the voting booths where we've had somebody handing out how to vote cards compared to another voting booth in the same demographic, you know, a school just down the road. We don't have enough volunteers, unfortunately, to cover every single voting booth. Um, but we've found that 
where there was, so one example is, I think it was 1.97% of the vote where we had no one handing out how to vote cards and the school down the road had nearly 4% because one person was there just handing out how to vote cards. So it doubles and sometimes more than doubles. Okay. Yeah, it seems like we could take those, we could, we could actually probably take that. That's almost enough information to make a guess of like, what is the odds that like one extra leafleter uh, causes you to get a seat or not? You would have to have some idea of like what the polling is and like how inaccurate it is and how much things swing. But uh, yeah, that could be an interesting exercise. I should maybe do that later. Have you, got, have you, have you looked into that? <laughs> Look, we do have um, people within the party that are, are looking at all of that sort of data stuff. Um, and we do know that it makes a huge difference. And what we're finding as well now is a lot of people doing pre-poll as well, which makes it a lot more work for us, um, making sure that we're there at pre-poll as well, um, and, and also sort of focusing on which electorates to, to focus on, where we're going to get the most votes. Um, so yeah, well, yeah, what electorates do you get the most votes? Uh, what was the demographic? So? It's really interesting. Um, we get a huge amount of votes in, like, the Campbelltown region, Bankstown region. Um, we get a really amazing vote up in Cessnock as well, and the Blue Mountains. Um, so... You know, it's not where people think we're going to do well. A lot of people think we're going to do really well in Newtown, but the Greens have really got a, a stronghold in Newtown, so we don't do so well there. Um, but we do do well um, in other pockets instead. Yeah, over, over the last few years, when you've been trying to get these various bills passed, like, what sort of leverage can you bring to bear? Like, what, what threats could you make? Or like, how, how can you persuade the government to pay attention to you at all? Um, look, there's quite a few things we can do. My favourite tactic is to put up amendments to the government's bill. Like I said, you know, if I can get Labor and the Greens on side and Justin Field, and if I can get Fred Nile, then I can amend their bill. And if we put through an amendment, then the government has to accept the amendment or throw out their own bill. Um, so we've had a huge number of laws changed that way. You know, we've put in bans, uh, animal bans for people who have abused animals. Um, we've banned bestiality and crush videos. Um, you know, we've got an enormous win amount of wins through that. But when they're not acting, you know, look, there's so many things that we can do. We can go to the media. And, and if you're ever focusing on a minister or a campaign, mention their name in the media because it flags to their staff member. So every time that you're focused on a particular minister, make sure if you're doing a radio interview or something else in your quotes, you mention their name. Um, because I always hear from their media advisors that, you know, oh, we saw that you mentioned this person again. Yeah. Um, and so you, you bring it up at budget estimates, you ask questions in the House, you debate the topics in Parliament. Um, and we did that with tougher penalties. And every time there was a pathetic penalty, because in New South Wales we had the weakest penalties, um, and um, we took it to the media, we mentioned that the minister hadn't acted on it, and then we eventually put up our own act and we said, well, we've got the numbers in the upper house to pass this, um, so we're doing your work for you. And then the government came up with their own bill, which looked eerily similar to my bill, but I'm very happy that they put that bill up because then it meant that we could pass it. And we threw in some wonderful amendments. So it sounds like if you can, if you can just take a bill that they're writing that they really care about and then you as a bunch of people in the upper house can just amend it and be like, well, are you going to pass this or are you going to dump it? Then it seems like you, get, you can put anything in there, right? Or like if you can get agreement from from like enough crossbenchers. Yeah, we have to get, the, well, it depends. I obviously would have to work yeah. within the piece of legislation that's come up. So you can amend, so for example, just recently, um, you know, a Child Protection Act came up. And so we put up an amendment that, you know, if you're 
um, applying for a working with children's check that you can't pass a working with children's check if you have a criminal history of animal abuse. Um, and so that's the sort of thing where we can get the numbers and then it goes through. Now, the, the government, when we put up an amendment for strata so that people who are in, you know, townhouses can have companion animals, the government were not happy <laughs> that mm. that passed. Um, but then they came to us and we sort of worked on a compromise and found a way through. Um, so that can happen as well. Yeah, have you ever done any kind of exchanges with the other? So it's like you want to get Mark Latham on board with something and, you'd be, and like he's got some crazy stupid idea, but you're like, whatever, whatever, Mark, we'll, we'll pass that if you'll do, if you'll help us stop bestiality. <laughs> Not really. It's been really interesting because we haven't ever had to do that. Um, I think one thing that we've been able to work on is the fact that no other party really has policies on animals. And so you go to, you know, One Nation, you talk about bestiality, they go, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not going to vote that down for sure. Yeah, if we're going to toughen up laws on that, that sounds fine. Um, so we don't, we've never been in a position where we have to do that. Um, and I think that we'd have to be tread very carefully because we don't want to be um, agreeing to things that our political party doesn't agree with. Yeah. To what extent is the minister or the government kind of scared of being uh, attacked with, with like images of like animal abuse or, you know, if they're not taking the, uh, you know, the puppy mills or whatever seriously, then you could like put up a photo of the minister, a photo of the puppy mill, uh, and then say, you know, this, this person supports that. Uh, and do they hate that? Yes. <laughs> and I've done that. Makes sense. Um, um, it's, it's been an interesting one, actually, because um, my Facebook page does quite a lot better than most of the ministers' Facebook pages. And so some of the ministers want to get onto my Facebook page. And so they're like, oh, let's do a photo together and you can put me on your Facebook page. Yeah. And they're usually the nicer ministers that want to work with us. And then you've got, you know, the agriculture minister who, the former agriculture, we did have um, a photo up of him about him refusing to ban puppy farms. And we did a campaign. Campaign. We also did billboards in his electorate about the fact that he won't ban puppy farms. Um, and nice. then he gave um, this big grant to the RSPCA to run a RSPCA task force to shut down puppy farms, um, which was useless because puppy farms aren't, uh, they're, well, they're legal. They're not illegal. So the RSPCA can't actually shut them down. Um, they can take the money and they can investigate them, but they can't shut them down because they're legal. Um, so that kind of got exposed as well. But they, they sort of try to throw something to try to cover it and say, look, we've sorted that. Um, but that just really gives us energy to keep driving and saying, OK, they're obviously paying attention. Yeah. So something, something else I heard in uh, the, the interviews that you've done in the past uh, when I was prepping for this is that it seemed like you'd kind of had a beef with the Greens at some point, or you, you, you and the Greens like agree on many things. Uh, the Greens, to some degree, are animal lovers, but uh, you had, uh, had a disagreement about uh, the well-being of wild animals. Uh, where you th yeah, do you want to explain this one? So probably like one of the big policy differences between the Animal Justice Party and the Greens is um, is around introduced animals, and I and I suppose that the Animal Justice Party, you know, it all comes down to sentience, and we recognise that introduced animals are, still have the same ability to feel fear, the same ability to feel pain. Um, recently, I put up an amendment to ban 1080 poison in Parliament. Um, 1080 poison is it's illegal in most places around the world. It causes horrific prolonged suffering, about 72 hours of, of seizures and vomiting. and um, It's just awful. And there's no antidote. It can kill children as well. Um, and we put up an amendment to ban it. Nobody supported me, including the Greens. Um, but, you know, I guess that comes down to our positioning on this. And look, at the Animal Justice Party, it's not that we're ignoring native animals. It's that we have to find 
the balance between the two. And that might be looking at any alternatives that are more humane. So for Brumbies, that might be immunocontraceptive darting if necessary, or deer. Um, for cats, it might be trap neuter release programs. There's even immunocontraceptive baiting research that's currently taking place. Um, so there are alternatives. They're not perfect. Um, I don't think that they're, they're necessarily great either. Um, but we do need to find that balance and we do need to recognise um, that both of those animals are sentient and um, that, you know, we can't, you know, agree to policies of, of kill them in any means necessary where we're throwing 1080 poison from the skies. And, that, and 1080 will kill any animal as well. It will also kill native and, and threatened species as well. Yeah, is the main issue there that kind of you're, uh, you're thinking about the issue on, on the level of the individual animal uh, and thinking about how they suffer. Um, but did the Greens come back with you? Uh, are you with kind of a, a like species-first framework where they're thinking, well, we've got to protect these species from extinction and they're not particularly thinking about the, any individual animals? Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. yeah, look, I think that that's probably it. And look, I think that probably within the Greens there's probably also some disagreement within within the Greens. There's, there's you know, the, the brown Greens and the, and the red Greens, I think <laughs> they're called. Um, and so, you know, like they've got their own factions within their parties. But um, for us, it's really about sort of pushing more humane alternatives and finding those humane alternatives and working um, yeah. to convince other parties that there are other ways and we need to be focusing on that science. All right, we've got 38 seconds. What's the most fun thing you've done in, uh, in the last few years oh, in Parliament? Have you, had, have you ever like, managed to really wind someone up or uh, um, make, make their life hard and you go home and you're like, yes, that was great? Oh, oh gosh. Okay. I, I know we got maybe, really... Maybe we're different people. I don't know. <laughs> we got really, really silly. Um, Mark Latham didn't want the energy bill to pass. So this was a really positive um, renewable energy bill. And so we decided um, collectively that we would just hold Parliament continuously until he basically collapsed. <laughs> and so I think, like, I, th I can't remember how many hours we did, but, like, it was... I, I mean, I'm quite surprised that, you know, I think it was 36 hours or something straight of Parliament. Um, but we just kind of got a bit silly and we were skipping around and, yeah... <laughs> Well, I, I knew I was going to have to Google Mark Latham, but now it seems I've got to look him up on YouTube as well. So uh, with that in mind, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Eva. Thank you.